the coalition for community solar is bipartisan and it's, it's full spectrum. And I think that's because everybody uses power, right? Energy is a universal thing. Everybody should benefit from saving on their power bills. And that's a message that you can take to any state. And it's been really affirming to see the reaction, which is the same in New York and Georgia, which is excitement about this sort of innovation. Community solar, the model where neighbors, community members can collectively purchase clean electricity from a central off-site solar array has been gaining massive attention and momentum of late, offering an option for equitable access to clean energy while helping to reduce carbon emissions and promising to keep energy prices low for consumers. But how exactly is it really different from any other types of solar energy projects? And more importantly, what does it mean for you as you embrace this clean energy revolution? My name is Nico Johnson, your host, as we navigate the inner workings of what has been hailed as the fourth vertical in the solar industry. Consider this your Community Solar 101. This five-part series presents unique perspectives from industry experts on how each of us might consider the role of community solar in our business, career, or even neighborhood. Does it really provide equitable access to solar energy? Will it live up to the hype? and hope, or is it too good to be true? So far, we've taken a look at how policy works at both the state and federal level, and we've also heard from a solar developer about the nuance and important differences for community solar from the other verticals. In episode four of this series, we'll hear from Kate Henningsen, co-founder and COO at Arcadia Power. Arcadia is perhaps the most well-known among a category of service providers known as aggregators. You've heard others thus far refer to community solar buyers or customers as subscribers. But who actually finds and enrolls and services these subscribers? How does customer acquisition for community solar really work? And how do you get beyond the general notion that it's just too good to be true? I mean, Nicole did just tell us in the last episode that they're going to offer and guarantee 20% bill reductions. To answer these questions and more, I reached out to Kate Henningsen. Kate and the Arcadia team have onboarded more than 200,000 solar customers and have eliminated the need for a FICO score as a prerequisite for subscription. Aggregators serve a critical function in the marketplace to lower customer acquisition costs and address the scalability of the sector. How? Stay tuned. The Community Solar Series is a production of Suncast Media and Season 1 is brought to you in partnership with EDP Renewables North America. Hi, I'm Kate Henningsen, the co-founder and COO at Arcadia. And Arcadia is a software layer that is powering the transition to clean energy. So one example we have, which is one of our biggest businesses, is we manage over a gigawatt of community solar across 14 states. We're also really active in making great software tools for EV customers, and we power about 4 million residential solar proposals each year. Kate, the scale of the work required is not lost on, on any of us. And the conversation that we're going to have today is regarding how community solar really gets done. Because at the end of the day, we have a large narrative around the policy requirements that are needed to even make a vertical like community solar possible. We have the development skill sets required to put the poles and wires up to get these electrons to places. But it's that last mile of the places that the electrons go that ultimately is what makes the economic engine work. It's the customer, right? 
we can't discuss community solar without actually talking about how customers are acquired and onboarded to this new consumer choice product. How does the community solar sector expand the idea of the customer opportunity and the customer acquisition for solar? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a new market still. It's a good thing to remember that community solar really, you know, we signed our first deal in 2018. So the market's still maturing. We're still learning a lot of stuff and Arcadia's learned a ton of stuff in the last three years. But one of them is that the whole construct of community solar is you need the end customer. You need the client either, you know, we deal a lot mostly in residential customers or small, medium businesses, and you need them to think about their power. For many of them, that's the first time. They're not thinking about solar. They're not thinking about how they get their energy. And so it is a new skill set to bring to a conversation that most people don't really have to have because they turn on the light switch and there's their power. Mm -hmm. Well, as chief operating officer of a company that has been growing leaps and bounds in the conversation around aggregating customers, you often have to wear many different hats. But I'm curious about the background training that helped prepare you. A lot of folks may be listening, thinking, I wonder if I should be on like the software and integration side of the business versus the hardware integration development side of the business. What's your personal background and training that got you sort of prepared to enter into the energy sector? Yeah. So I will say for anyone listening, it's a great time to be in the clean energy sector. I mean, I've been now in the here. I mean, you've been in it longer than I have, but I've been in it for seven (laughs) years and something's changed in the last two or three years. There are amazing people from all walks of life now getting interested in climate, climate tech, it's so cool because now there's opportunity for all different types of people. But my background, maybe I'm a little more traditional, even if you think of the spectrum of sort of opportunities, was I was a corporate lawyer. So I was a litigator mm-hmm. doing large sort of bet the company litigations at a big firm and knew sort of after having my first child, our first child, that we were, I was not going to go back to law firm life. Uh, it's wonderful training, but not sort of the, I wanted more of a creative life, more of an impactful sort of profession and thought to myself, who needs a lawyer? Somebody in a regulated business. So energy is such a great transition from law. You can use those same type of brain cells and skill sets in a regulated business like energy. So I actually cold emailed Kieran, who was our CEO when there was nobody else and said, I think you're going to need a lawyer if you're going to do all this energy stuff. And he said, great, I don't need that at all, but come on, let's, let's go do this together. And that was the start. That's amazing. So for those who maybe aren't familiar, Kieran is the CEO and co-founder with Kate. And these guys have built a real business, a real business that is now one of our few solar industry, at least tangential unicorns doing just tremendous work. I'm curious, how did becoming a lawyer help you navigate those startup waters? I mean, it's a big difference between corporate law and a startup environment. So one of the things that I reflect on is law, and we're not going to talk about energy, but we're going to talk about risk, right? So law is really a profession of risks. You trade in risk, you have to understand risk. And Mm. what I didn't know at the time, I had, in retrospect, this seems like a very smart plan. Trust me, there was (laughs) very little knowledge. This is all a story that makes sense in hindsight. Right, as most do. As most do, but gosh, it's a good one now. It makes total sense. So yeah, lawyers are, you can have lawyers who are risk averse. And I think you can see a lot of that. I think that's where the popular culture of lawyers say no all the time. No, yeah, the contract prevention department. Yes, exactly, right? The the stick in the mud. We're not going to do this. We're going to be protected. I actually turned out to be a lawyer who's just comfortable with risk. I can sit with Mm. it objectively. I can evaluate it. And I think when you're really early in a startup, you have to be able, you have to take risks. I mean, there's so many times that we did things that were wrong we're silly, we're dumb, and yet we did it. And even if it wasn't the right thing, it progressed us in a way. And so I think you just need that comfort and that ability to assess a risk, minimize it, but then still act, which actually I think being a lawyer 
that sort of skill set helped. And then we deal with regulators still all the time at, at Arcadia. I mean, community mm-hmm. solar is a regulated business. The legislature passes the laws, as your audience know, and the Public Utilities Commission then implements it. So, you know, we very much, I fortunately don't have to be general counsel anymore, but we deal a lot with regulators to explain the value proposition, to have them help us with the customer, that type of stuff. Yeah. As COO, it's great to have that skill set of both sitting with risk and being a risk taker, the ability to cold mm-hmm. outreach, I'm sure was helpful post-acquisition of your first client, Karen and, and Arcadia. <laughs> But Kate, as you started to survey 2016, 2015, the product suite that you're building and what and what was going on in generally in the energy sector. And for those unfamiliar, we did an episode on Suncast with Kieran, where he talked a lot about his work at American Efficient and his understanding mm. of kind of where the industry was going. If you want more background on Arcadia specifically, I would point you to that direction. But I am curious because you guys were so you were sitting in the middle in Washington, D.C., in the middle of kind of what was happening in the policy industry. Where did you see that first chink in the armor of the product delivery, the customer acquisition process, where was the breakdown occurring that was effectively limiting market scale for solar? So our first go-to-market 2015, seven years ago, we sold WinRex, right? So wind energy in all 50 states. The kernel of that idea has carried in the vision of the company, which is that all consumers should have a choice for clean energy. Like that is the fundamental kernel of where we started as a business. It carries through community solar, it carries through a lot of things that the consumer should drive energy transition, and they're going to drive it faster than a monopoly utility system. And so that kernel has lived, even though our product suite has changed over the years and will continue to change as it should. So our first go-to-market was Windrex, premium Windrex. And I think as a lot of people in clean energy will know, it is a product that some people want, but it's never going to be the product that can scale to the masses, right? A premium energy product, a very confusing you know, again, maybe my legalese, I was like, oh, Windrex, it's the legal way, but no one knows what, that's a hard thing for a customer to sell. So I think what we started to really learn those early years was an energy consumer is not like any other type of consumer. In our normal lives, we're bombarded with choice, delight. I mean, you know, you open up DoorDash and they've made this app that you can get any food easily with two clicks to your door in 10 minutes. Energy is just not like that. Energy the utility has a guaranteed customer. I think I saw a stat the other day that utilities spend about 3% of their budget on innovation, where most mm. companies spend about 40%. And yeah. that's not their fault. That's just, that's the industry we're in and how we monetize our energy business. And so we really learned those early years a lot about what the customer thinks about, how to meet the customer where they are, what they actually want, what their pain points are. And community solar, you know, we'll dive more deeply, but it changed the narrative for us because it's a guaranteed savings product, right? So it really allows all the goodness of clean, green energy, but at a cost savings, which is so much different than our first go-to-market, which was a premium, you know, consumer had to pay extra for it. So now we're at a point where consumers know the product exists and they have access to it, but there still is, even in the podcast world, there's a discovery problem. It's not that great podcasts don't exist. It's that you, the consumer, don't know about Suncast. So you didn't listen to it. And when you discovered it, you realized this is the choice I should have been making all along, (laughs) right? So let's define a term for folks that is often used in our industry that maybe they haven't heard of yet called aggregator. Help me understand what an aggregator is and why it needs to exist in the context of what we just discussed. So community solar is a really unique product in the market in that states have required there to be individual consumers to unlock the economics of this project. So I'm sure your listeners have heard about how community solar has really unique, juicy economics, but the only way to get at that is to go after individual customers 
sometimes small, medium businesses, really varies by state. All of a sudden, you have developers who are really in the construction finance game needing to get end-use consumers who are in the delight game, who are in the modern digital acquisition game. And those two languages really don't, they don't really talk to each other, right? You can have somebody who's really great at land use, you know, land, finding a land person to put a solar project on or can finance it and construct it and like is great at project development. They're not going to know how to talk to somebody who doesn't think about energy that much, who is an end-use consumer, who just has much different standards in their lives than Mm -hmm. sort of the skill set for a solar project developer. And so Arcadia really fills that middle role of going to find the customer because ultimately they're, you know, they're what we call offtake in the energy industry. And so aggregating those customers to bring to the developer so they can have the offtake they need to go construct and finance their project. Fantastic. I love the the analogies here and the bifurcation really of skill sets needed. And that's what I was harking to in the earlier question around as we scale, there really are constraints and breakdowns that we all began to see, which is, you know, we've got a lot of folks that are really good at building infrastructure and developing these projects. And then there's a whole other side as evidenced by the requirement essentially for customer acquisition in our sector, where we need to utilize not only software, but new digital communication tools. I mean, one of the, one of the first sort of internal acquisitions, the aggregators I know make is they'll go out and they'll find someone who has a skill set in lead generation and a skill set in building online sales presentation and funnels. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And no developer I know knows what a funnel is. <laughs> right? Totally. Different skill yeah. set. Yeah. Kate, you know, we've talked a lot in the preceding episodes about the nature of community solar really truly opening up the purview of our industry to an entire new category of clients, not just low to moderate income folks who heretofore didn't have maybe the FICO score or the savings, or other access and opportunity, but to even folks that it doesn't necessarily work on their particular property and they don't own that property. How have you seen this narrative evolve and how do you all think about that customer acquisition and retention process? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. You know, we're managing now upwards of 200,000 customers and we get to learn a lot about that data set with that amount of people. So one of the first things we did in 2018 was we decided not to do a FICO check. So even that in the solar industry was a big step of, you know, most most solar providers, they're making a 20-year relationship with someone, right? The the panels are on the roof. It's a 20-year relationship. You have to make sure they can pay. And we said, we're here to provide access for all. And so we said no FICO score. And we've had to really get sophisticated because our statistic is two thirds of Americans can't put solar on their roofs. And the biggest reason is because they're renters, right? We serve Mm, an an amazing amount of renters. And I think in the sort of old construct of solar, a renter is scary. A renter moves. A renter is someone you can't rely on for 20 years. It's a disqualifier. You can't even have a conversation. And what we've done through technology is make sure that we can actually, we also know that 85% of people stay within their same utility territory. And so through technology, we've been able then to, we can track movers, we can move with them much more easily. And so we've opened up a whole new class of customers, which, you know, no FICO score, renters, I mean, just to name a few, and then we can move with them. You know, first developers are like, this is not a construct that I feel comfortable with, but we're saving such a high number of those movers that now renters are a great option because they can be younger. They like that. They've never had a product like this offered to them. Yeah. So it's very exciting to be like, oh, I can do something. So they turn out to be really great customers that a developer would never have talked to because they don't sit in one place for 20 years. But 
through technology and our platform and our sort of digital first thinking, we've been able to open up a new type of customer for these developers. Okay, so Miss Lawyer, I know that you were involved in this conversation. Great. How the heck do you get underwriters comfortable with no FICO score? It was a process. We're now in year four. We signed our first deal in 2018. So we're in year four and, and it's yeah. been a process. How we talk to underwriters and how we get people comfortable is that we're able to acquire at such a scale, even if we can't retain them all, that we're acquiring at such a scale that financiers are comfortable that our pool of customers is always going to be big enough to fill the project. So, And here comes the... Yeah, here comes the role and the need for aggregators in the industry, because in fact, without an aggregator who in fact has more clients than seats to sit them in, I'll use the same analogy we used in episode two on finding a spot on the node, right? It's this busy parking lot. And right now, mm. the better job we do marketing, the better job we say, hey, everyone can now go solar. We then have a natural constraint on our developer friends that says, hey guys, build a bigger parking lot because we got more people circling than we have yeah. parking spots for them to park. And oh, by the way, Banks, you don't ever have to worry about my revenue on this parking lot because as soon as somebody moves off, I got another guy waiting in line. This is like your parking line at your kid's school. Totally, yeah. So, right, I mean, that's exactly right. We we actually, we precede markets now. So like we get people excited, they sign up for a wait list. And so we have, we often have tens of thousands of customers ready when a state opens that the developer then can have first right to basically. So you have to do that early. You have to do that at scale. Yeah. Well, this is a question that I think a lot of folks have, and I'd love if you'd be as open and if you could discuss as much as possible with us around process, because I think a lot of folks are really genuinely curious, how does it even work? But how do they sign up? You said you precede markets. Like, Tell me the diversity of channels that you use. Give me a sense of the kinds of marketing techniques that you are deploying that, that again, like maybe as a solar developer, I might not even know exist or need. Yeah. I mean, and this is really where, you know, we've been a digital company for seven years. And so we've learned a lot of lessons selling different products. Diversity of channels is really how we get that scale. So we do digital marketing, we do partnership marketing, we do some direct sales. One of the interesting areas that we've opened up the last year is really and new for us, candidly, is small, medium businesses. So we're doing a different type of direct sale to a barbecue place in Maine versus a sort of younger renter in Virginia. And so it's really the sophistication of knowing who you're talking to. And so, you know, we call it full funnel. And so we'll do sort of probably eight or nine different channels from straight digital to direct sales to partnership marketing. And probably more we're going to figure out next year as well. It's continually evolving how we get customers. And I'll also say it depends on state, right? Different states have different types of customers. Different mm -hmm. programs need different types of customers. And so it's also the agility to basically have 12 different states up and running with all different channels. You know, when I, as someone who's been in the industry for 16 years, realized that companies like Arcadia, these aggregator platforms, folks that were really focused on broadening top of funnel so that it get, does provide energy access for all, when I realized this was really, truly working, to your point earlier, like awesome people are coming into our industry that we never attracted before, is when I saw the announcement for your SVP of marketing, Rubina Singh. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think she came from. Pinterest? Pinterest. Right? Total consumer company. Yeah. Talk about customer acquisition. Talk about right. addressing where people are going, not where they are, right? Tell yeah. basically a consumer taste maker. Totally. And to have that kind of acumen internal for a company in the solar industry is a powerful nod, not just to the underwriters, but to Silicon Valley that we are coming of age. And I think that community solar, despite all odds against it, has been really the bastion of hope for our industry to 
create an opportunity for folks from tech to get in, for folks from all walks of life to say, oh, I, okay, I see, I actually see how this allows greater customer expansion and mm -hmm. diversity and mm -hmm. reduction of risk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's spot on that there's, and it's new, right? It, there's this energy, energy is coming like this in the last two or three years, we're talking to people and, and that we didn't talk to seven years ago because the interest is, is just different. And I think the knowing that you can be a consumer marketer like Verbena and do something in energy is really a very, that didn't exist really before community solar at scale. And so I think yeah. that's such a exciting time for people to think about what they can do with different skills that might not seem energy. Let's talk a bit about the regulatory environment, because as we all are aware, and certainly anyone who's listened to the preceding episodes here, the entire market hangs in the balance of regulatory approval. Regulatory policy decisions are the key pivotal driver. I'd like to understand from your perspective, as one of the companies that is making great strides, great efforts, investing heavy amounts of, of like on the ground artillery mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. this battle, how do you know when it's time to go into a new market? And then how do regulators see this particular version of a solar product? Yeah, I mean, spot on that this is a regulated revenue stream, regulated industry. Going back to the lawyer question. So I was a lawyer and Kieran was a, a Hill staffer. And so I think both of us early on also saw the power, you know, regulation, I think is scary to a lot of people, but it's also an opportunity. It means somebody else can tell another company to do something like that is mm. powerful. So we always saw it as the market expansion rather than the sort of the, the constraint. Community solar is growing so fast, right? And I, I think yeah. that's allowed us the opportunity to say every state should have community solar. And so we have a 50-state strategy. There's also a federal bill that we're championing right now. And so we actually think that there's a real opportunity to play in every state because when we go and have conversations, legislators love this product. It is often directed at LMI folks. There's a guaranteed savings component. It's innovative, right? I mean, one thing we hear from regulators is, gosh, I'm so sick of talking about rate cases. This is an amazing thing to talk about, right? They're so used to kind of the bread and butter rate cases or transmission line discussions that having a conversation about the consumer is really exciting to regulators, to legislators. Uh, and so we get to bring that energy that they're very responsive to. You know, my skeptical brain is going to get hung on, and I, I want to make, I want to honor the solar warriors out there who just heard what you said and thought, well, wait a minute, back up. Let's back the, cor the card up for a second. What do you mean guaranteed savings? And how is a regulator not going to jump all over a claim like that? So what's great, and asterisk, it varies by state, right? So if we did have our general counsel on here, he'd tell me that there's particulars and it varies by state. But the essence is that when the law is passed, they're putting in language that says it's an index rate or there's a, you know, or you have to offer a certain rate to the customer for their subscription service. It's not a claim that we as the aggregator are making up of sort of a marketing yeah. claim. It starts from the legislation. And I think that's what's so powerful. And that's what makes wow. it so fun. It is legislated that it has to save them power or, yes. or, or money. Exactly. Yeah. We learned, of course, from the federal government that this is what the DOE has said we want to see. Yes. Yeah, it is a perfect consumer product if you can get people to believe that it's real, which sometimes that was my next question. <laughs> How do you overcome the skepticism in the marketplace where Facebook won't let me say guaranteed savings? They'll flag it. Totally. I mean, ironically, that is one of our biggest challenges is that consumer skepticism. When you say we have something that sounds too good to be true, they will say no, thank you. It sounds too good to be true. So yeah. we work a lot on language of how we say that. Like in my mind is, is hopefully folks have seen this, the Alexa Silver commercial and, and the folks going, uh, I don't know about that. 
<laughs> exactly. Right? Exactly. Like, those guys need to like those folks are our clients. They're our target, right? And they're gonna they're gonna be scratching their head, going, "I don't know about that. That sounds too good to be true," <laughs> you know. Because we got folks on, not necessarily right now in the United States, by and large, folks in their 30s to 50s, upwardly mobile, economically and educationally sound, like got a solid foundation, have been buying solar because it makes a lot of Mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. And the folks in their 20s and the folks in their 60s are going, I don't know, I can't waste my pension on this. I can't waste my savings on this. And we get a chance to expand to them, but we have to be able to, we have to be careful because it is legislated. And I love, like, we don't even have time and space right now to talk about all the ways that I'm sure you and and other aggregators are thinking about, like, what is the problem? What is the problem, the the solution set that gets customers to overcome this too good to be true scenario? And you're moving into markets that I would never have expected in the Bible Belt, markets in the Southeast, even that it sounds to me like regulators are starting to go, oh, okay, well, maybe this solves some of our net energy metering conversations or solves some of our other sort of utility dance conversations. Can you talk a bit about some of the states that are coming online, some of the markets where you're seeing traction? Yeah, I mean, we've we've also been pleasantly surprised. I mean, we're, we're having, you know, and these are not bills passed, but we're, there's active conversations happening in Georgia, Mississippi, Arkansas. You have, you know, Ohio, Wisconsin, purple states. Virginia just passed a law, which is a purple state. New Mexico. And so you're really getting this diversity. And one of the things that I love, so we often put together, you know, like a legislative panel, we'll bring people to talk to legislators. And we have clean energy people, of course, we do talk developers or like, you know, clean energy folks. We also have Farm Bureau people, right? There's like Mm -hmm. this wonderful overlap of like, oh, let's use farmland. Let's let's help our farmers. The coalition for community solar is bipartisan and it's it's full spectrum. And I think that's because everybody uses power, right? Energy is its universal thing. Everybody should benefit from saving on their power bills. And that's a message that you can take to any state. And it's been really affirming to see the reaction, which is the same in New York and Georgia, which is excitement about this sort of innovation. Kate, we could pretend that it's all tailwind and fairy dust, and the industry is growing faster than we ever thought possible. But there are a lot still of headwinds. We talked a little bit about the sort of just the consumer marketing headwinds, but there are natural things that as an industry, we have to kind of, we have to figure out how to overcome. What are the obstacles that still stand in the way of community solar being pervasive? So things I didn't think we would talk about. I mean, you know, the solar tariff issue, we are sort of seeing a little bit of worry starting there. You know, if we can't get panels, if we can't build. And so I think that's a little more real than than we were sort of hoping it would mm. be, that there's some contraction. I'm sure the trade know, all issues, your, yeah. the trade issues and, 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 you know, the contraction and the slowing of the market, I think is universal in the industry. And we're, we're starting to see that with solar. So I think that is actually sort of the, one of the bigger worries. You know, I'll also say there's really a, there is a spectrum, you know, we're talking sort of that the regulation or the laws are monolithic. And there really is a spectrum of yeah. some states are, you know, it's easier for us to operate in some states, it's easier for community solar both to, to build, but really on the consumer side, sort of how they, how the regulators want to construct the consumer experience, because they, you know, they have a vote too, and they do put up rules and regulations that we have to follow. And so there really is a spectrum of how easy it is for us to operate versus how difficult. And we do find that there are some states that really are challenging to do sort of the new digital tools we want to or use a, use a fun, funnel to grow, those types of things. Right. So I still think there is some risk to sort of how these programs are implemented. Is there any holdover from the resistance that has been felt in the last 10 to 20 years over retail industry in general to consumers? Yes, totally spot on that when regulators hear consumer energy, 
they think about the retail energy industry, which there's been studies that show, you know, attorneys generals now are very, they've done a lot of studies that show that consumers haven't saved because of retail choice. And so they're skeptical when there's anybody knocking on doors or sending a message to the individual consumer that we're peddling the same thing that was peddled 10 years ago, and that didn't help consumers. And there's a hundred percent needing to have that conversation. Community solar is so new that it really isn't something that regulators are used to. And so even if you know, it got passed by the legislator, that doesn't mean that they know exactly what it is. And so definitely true that, that there's sort of an education hurdle to jump over. Yeah. You know, speaking of education and hurdles to jump over, with regards to these reg- regulators, we've talked at length that they need education. In some cases, they need handholding. One of the complaints I've heard is that many of these states sort of make the mistake of making these programs too rich. It makes the mm. land rush all too unnecessary. Mm. Illinois is a great example mm. of this. What are your thoughts around how to navigate that regulatory interaction, the policymaker interaction, such that these programs are built in a way that both is incentivizes but doesn't over incentivize and, and strip opportunity? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting point because I'd say from our perspective, a state like Maine, where there was no cap, open market, not the hugest population in Maine. And so very quickly, the regulators like, oh, this might not be a good idea. And so they started to do sort of the, the study, like they wanted to study the transmission and the effect on the grid. And so that market's contracting. And I think, mm-hmm. I think most people would agree having clear rules when you start the market rather than opening and shutting is a preferred way to go about it. So I think- How long you know, does that take then? We're in the middle of it. And so I think that might, but it's going to probably be a, you know, slower for a, a year or so as they sort of figure out what the ideal size of the program is. And so taking the time in the beginning to sort of think through how many customers, I mean, no one believes that community solar should be a hundred percent of the power mixture. And so how do you sort of in the beginning do the study, make very clear expectations of how big the program will be? I think will help everybody prepare and know what to expect in a way that then just makes an easier to run program. Kate, it's obvious through this conversation that there is a need to crawl before you walk. It seems like regulators are realizing this is not an experimental tool anymore. It's a real tool they can pull from their tool chest and deploy for very real energy access and equity needs in their own markets, which I love. I love that it gives that opportunity for regulators and policymakers to see solar in a new, I'll call it a new light, not a positive or a negative, but just an offer. And Mm -hmm. it amplifies the opportunity for them to do good in their constituents' territories. And it it begs the question for me, where are we in the, in the game, right? If, if this is a baseball game, are we still in spring training? Mm -hmm. Uh, Have we gotten into the first inning of the season? And where do you see in terms of scale? I'm not, not, I don't know that you have like numbers tip of tongue for the industry, but how do you see the industry scaling from here? What's the time horizon look like? Yeah, great, great question. If we stick with the baseball analogy, so I would say we're early innings, early innings, maybe first, you know, second inning where we're, you know. So we, we're out of spring training. We're out of Good. spring, I think. Minnesota, we, Colorado, thank you, Massachusetts, <laughs> New York. You guys are done, did a great job. I mean, we're, you know. Where was there Arizona are... in spring training? <laughs> no one wants to be in Minnesota for spring training. It's too cold. There's hundreds of thousands of people on this product now. So it has reached a scale that's larger than some residential rooftop companies, right? Like some publicly traded residential rooftop companies, 200,000 customers. Arcadia alone has that much scale, plus you add in everything else. And so 
hundreds of thousands of customers are on this product. So we, you know, we're through spring training. We've done the couple, you know, we got the weight on the bat. We're ready to kind of to start it off. But we are still early. I mean, I think we're one of the things that's really interesting to me is states are now expanding. So our first at bat was, hey, let's open a new state. But wow, you have you have Maryland, you have Illinois, New York, you have states that are saying we want more of this. And to me, that's a really good sign that the pilots or the tests can even expand from there to get more and more megawatts. I do think of things in Arcadia, our business growth, but you know, we are growing 155% year over year. We expect that growth in community solar to continue. So we're doubling our business essentially every year, really projected for the next several years. And so I think that tracks the market in our projections are that it's going to be a very sturdy growing market with a lot of value creation for everyone in the industry and most importantly, the customers to benefit from. As you've so well enunciated, at the end of the day, this is an opportunity to expand the potential for customer choice. The way we consume energy is changing. The way we generate energy is changing. And companies like Arcadia are providing equitable access, not just for those consumers, but for our industry to reach those consumers in new and exciting and uh, technology-enabled ways. Thank you for helping us unpack the customer journey through the lens of Arcadia for Community Solar, Kate. Great to hear from you. Thanks, Nico. Really awesome. Thanks. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode in this five-part series exploring how Community Solar works from the perspective of policy, technical expertise, financial analysis, and commercial opportunity. Many thanks to the expert contributors sharing their insights to this series and to our partner, EDP Renewables North America, who helped make it possible. Here's a sneak peek at what's coming in tomorrow's episode. The Community Solar Program was created to allow for the development and operation of renewable energy projects that will generate electricity and RECs that will then be dedicated to the utility who will retire it on the behalf of the state to meet their RPS goals. I hope you'll subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and check us out on the web at mysuncast.com forward slash community solar. That's all one word where you can read more about each guest, find additional background information on each episode and dig into the references from each discussion. If you're completely unfamiliar with me and this is your first time listening to Suncast, well, I've interviewed more than 400 founders, leaders, entrepreneurs, and entrepreneurs in the clean energy industry over the last six years through the Suncast podcast, all in an effort to help you figure out exactly where you fit in this clean energy transition. If you haven't yet, I'd encourage you to give Suncast a listen. It's the most comprehensive podcast in existence, documenting the rise of the solar and clean energy revolution from the voices of the leaders brave enough to stand on the front lines. Community Solar is a production of Suncast Media, and this season one is brought to you by our friends at EDP Renewables North America. Let them be your partner and bring your next community solar project to completion. Find out how by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash community solar. Remember, you are what you listen to. So thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.